So, all right. So today we're going to um, continue with our series of lectures to um, come to a conclusion from the, uh, on the, the section on population and community ecology. And last time, or three lectures ago, we were talking about the regulation of population and growth. And this time, we're going to move into um, Yeah, okay, just want to make sure the boards were in order. Community ecology. And as I said in the first lecture, this is one of the more difficult branches of the ecological sciences to, to really um, describe because a, a community, an ecological community is a bit of an abstract concept. Um, and uh, one definition is that it's a collection of species that are linked together by their feeding relationships. Okay, so it has to, it, it's, it's sort of like the ecosystem without the, uh, without the biogeochemistry in a sense. Um, so really what we're looking at here is the interaction between species in a, in a localized area uh, with respect to how they influence each other's um, fitness in a sense. And these, these interrelationships between these species govern all of the things that we talked about in the first half of my uh, lecture set, it's these interactions that shape the biogeochemistry of, of those systems. So this is the structure of the system and the biogeochemistry um, is the function of the system. And it's also these interactions, so they, they, affect, they affect the flow of energy, which we talked about. They affect the cycling of elements. They affect the, the evolution, the very evolution of species within the community. And these, these communities self-assemble. In other words, if you start with a, a, an empty plot of bare land, uh, we talked about this, remember the example of the glacier retreating um, and showing the succession of species as the glacier retreated? You start with a, a, a bare rock uh, and you'll start getting lichen growing on the rock and then that lichen will create uh, a little bit of soil allowing plants to come in and then the plants uh, increase the productivity, some of them bring nitrogen in, uh, allowing shrubs and trees and everything. And that's the self-assembly of a, of a community. Once you have plants there, you can have insects there. Once you have insects there, you have birds there. Um, it self-assembles. And one of the questions uh, 
that ecologists ask is, is how, how deterministic is that? I mean, what, we know there are some random components to it, and we know there are some things that will happen, because we see it happen over and over and over. So the big question is, you know, what, what must happen, what could happen, and what might not ever happen. So that's really one of the challenges, challenges of, of, of ecologists, is to understand the assembly rules. of communities, if there are any. Now, we're not going to really get into that. We're just going to start uh, looking at, at the real fundamentals of, of community ecology, which is uh, what are the possible interactions between species that, that, that shape evolution. OK. Species interactions. Um, so <clears throat> when we talk about species interactions and how they structure communities, we have to first uh, define some terms. And one is Darwinian fitness. And the the fitness of an individual is the fitness is the relative ability of an individual in a population to survive and reproduce. So it's all relative, OK, within a population. And we're going to define also, uh, we'll be talking about adaptations. And I know you, I know you know what this is. Uh, but let's just make sure that we are all operating uh, with the same assumption. And an adaptation, which is something that affects the fitness, is a heritable trait that increases the fitness of an individual with respect with respect to other individuals in that population okay so these are just some operating assumptions so that when we talk about species interactions there are several possibilities if we have organism 1 and organism 2 Um, we can have, and we ask, how does the, the presence of organism 2 in, in the presence of organism 1 affect the fitness of the two organisms? And if, if the fitness of the both 
organisms is increased by being in the presence of the other. That's called mutualism. Being together increases the fitness of both relative to um, when they're alone. If being together decreases the fitness of both, that's called competition. And if you have this situation, what would we call that? Could be parasitism, yep. Um, parasitism. What else? What's the ultimate form of reduced fitness? Predation, yeah. Being dead is the ultimate reduced fitness. Um, so parasitism and predation. And then there are, are some other sort of rather vague interactions where you have, where when you put two individuals together, um, the fitness of one is not influenced, but the fitness of the other is either influenced positively or negatively. And we're not going to talk about those, um, but they're called, this one's called commensalism. And this one's called amensalism. And obviously there are gradients. Actually, an example of, of commensalism is something that we've talked about. Can anybody think, think about what that is when we talked about food webs? It's kind of a stretch, but um, detritor, detritivory, detritivory, an organism eating detritus, in a sense, is commensalism because it, it doesn't affect the fitness of the dead individual because it's already dead, right? So, but that, that gets to not having that much meaning. Um, so anyway, but these we're not going to spend time on, but they are, um, they are forms of interaction that do exist, and, and there are gradients between these. Obviously, it's not all, all black and white. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about competition. Um, and just to remind you, it comes, competition comes in two forms. We, there is intraspecific competition, which means within a species, okay? And, and that's not what we're going to be talking about today, but this is, we've already talked about this without explicitly, um, remember our logistic equation. And the, 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 the density-dependent feedback mechanisms in that population that, that caused uh, the population to deviate from exponential growth was due to intraspecific competition. Species within a, I mean, individuals within a species competing with each other for a resource. What we're going to be talking about now 
is more, or is, uh, interspecific. which is competition between species, okay? Um, so I want to show you some, um, some slides that, just to get you, they're just from your textbook, but to get you um, in the mood for a competition. So it comes in all different uh, forms, and, uh, the, and I, I don't care whether you know the names of these, it doesn't matter. This is just to give you an idea of the, the different um, types of competition that we see in nature. This is what's called consumptive competition, and this is just showing the roots of trees uh, competing for nutrients in the soil. Preemptive competition shows, um, these are barnacles, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, just totally taking over the substrate so no other organism could possibly settle there. Overgrowth competition in plants where this plant would be shading um, so other plants other, the, uh, that require a lot of light could not grow underneath. Um, chemical competition also occurs where one plant will actually excrete um, certain chemicals that create these, these um, corridors of no growth around them, so other plants can't get near to compete for the nutrients. The classic form of competition, say, in birds and in a lot of um, higher organisms is competition for territory. So these are, are displays uh, so that, that an individual can keep a certain territory and therefore make that food available to itself, therefore increasing its fitness. Um, because it's able to uh, feed its young. Uh, and then this is sort of the classic, uh, really, tooth and claw competition where, in counter competition, where all these species are competing over this zebra carcass, uh, hy hyena, vultures, etc. Okay. Now, before we can talk more in more detail about uh, competition, we need to define the ecological niche. And this is an interesting concept in ecology that um, has been around for quite some time, and it kind of went out of popularity for a while, um, and I was, I was gratified to see that it's made it back into the introductory biology textbooks because I think it's a very profound concept. Um, and it, it, this, this particular definition, the fundamental ecological niche, comes from uh, uh, G. Evelyn Hutchinson, uh, who was one of the founders of, of modern ecology. And he defined the fundamental niche of an organism as an n-dimensional hypervolume, every point on which a species can survive and reproduce indefinitely in the absence of other species, okay? So this is a, this is a abstract concept because no species are really in the absence of other species, except maybe in a test tube. Um, but it defines the, <clears throat> and, and also, it, 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 we can't even think about n dimensions, right? We're able to think about, we can envision three dimensions, but what he's talking about here um, 
is, is every single dimension in the environment that would have any effect on the fitness of an organism. So here, to, to just to get, wrap our brains around this, we're looking at three dimensions. For these are, our, our organism here is a ladybug, and this would be food size. Okay, these guys eat little aphids and things. I don't know if you've ever used them on your houseplants, but it's a good way to keep aphids off your houseplants if you want to introduce ladybugs to your dorm room, which is maybe you don't. But, um, but there's a certain range of size, food size, that they can eat. Uh, and so that's three dimensions. There might be, uh, there are undoubtedly many, many other dimensions that we don't even know about, um, elements that they require, et cetera. So, so this would be everywhere in this space is a space where, where this organism could survive and reproduce indefinitely. And the reason this concept uh, lost favor is that it, it, it's something you could never, ever measure this. Uh, because we, 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 we can't know the end dimensions. Well, you can never say you can't know anything, but, but it's very difficult to, to say you could know all the dimensions um, that influence the fitness of an organism. But it's still a very important concept for thinking about it. And the niche is not a physical place, okay? The niche of an organism, it's not a physical place. It's, a, it's an end-dimensional hypervolume. Uh, an abstract concept. So, so this is the fundamental niche. And then um, here's another closely related species whose niche uh, has some overlap with this one, but uh, has different ranges for temperature, humidity, and food size. And when you have overlapping niches you, is when you have the possibility, the potential for competition. And two things can happen. If they overlap a lot, um, then those two species cannot coexist in the same environment. One will outcompete the other, and it, it will move on to some other place where it doesn't have a strong competitor. Um, <clears throat> but if they overlap a little, you can actually have co competitive coexistence. And we're going to talk about the, these, the results of these, these degrees of niche overlap as we go on in the lecture. So. Um, the, if, 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 you can, if a, a species can make its realized, so that this is its fundamental niche, this one's fundamental niche, and what happens if it can make its realized niche uh, small enough so that there's no niche overlap, uh, then you can have coexistence of, of those two species, or, or very little niche overlap in the same environment. So that's the difference between the fundamental and the, and the realized niche. Um, so just looking at, um, I think th this is from your textbook, uh, just, this is just one niche dimension, seed size, um, for, for, say, a bird um, eating seeds of, of this size range. We'll be talking about birds a lot in this. Um, and here's um, partial niche overlap. Species two, where they eat some seeds of the same size, but by and large, the mode is, is different. You can have species coexisting. Um, can, partial niche overlap can, can lead to competitive coexistence. Um, oops. And here's the complete overlap in just this one dimension, um, which 
would lead to competitive exclusion. But obviously, it matters what's happening on all the dimensions. So this is just an oversimplification to give, to give you the idea. OK. Um, so before we go to that, I want to talk about a classic experiment that led to this. I'm going to put this screen up. Screen, 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 screen. Screen. Can you see, or do I need to turn the lights? Do I need to turn the lights on? Thank you. I'm sorry. I always ask my questions that way, where you, there's no possible answer. Uh, <clears throat> there were some classic competition experiments um, carried out by uh, Gaussa. And way back in 1934, that I'm just going to use to illustrate um, the concept of competitive exclusion, um, because these were done with very simple protozoa in a test tube, uh, paramecia, and and he was actually. This was back in the days when they were developing these theories for, for population growth. And these uh, organisms were growing according to the logistic equation. So here we are with, and this is the classic experiment actually in your textbook that they talk about in the context of the, the ecological niche. So this is um, Paramecia caudatum. These names aren't important. Don't worry about it, but we have to call them something. Aurelia, which when grown alone in a test tube, grow according to the logistic equation. They grow up, and then they level off at a certain level. And what Gaussa did is that he wanted to see, uh, look at this, this phenomenon of, of competition, and he grew them together. And he found that, actually, that no matter what combination he put in, Aurelia would always win out in competitive exclusion. And he learned through a series of experiments, we don't have time to go into the details, but that, that this would always occur if you made uh, two species compete in a very simple environment. Um, and and that, at the test tube, wh where he was feeding these guys exactly the same food, some form of bacterium, in a test tube, one of them would always, or this one would always outcompete the other, and there'd be competitive exclusion. If he made the environment more complex, 
where there were layers in it or there was uh, sediment in the bottom of the test tube um, that allowed more, ditch, more niche dimensions, there were conditions under which uh, the competitive coexistence would be allowed. And he actually um, developed a set of equations that, to describe this competition that I'm going to write for you. Um, we're not going to use them. We're not going to analyze them in detail. But I'm just going to show them to you to, so that you have an appreciation for, um, for what, how population ecologists and community ecologists start to think about these systems. Um, so he said we, could model, we can model this interaction uh, using our logistic equation. So he said dn dt would be uh, the growth rate of, let's call, the top one, one, it doesn't matter which you call which. Um, dn dt equals r sub 1, n sub 1. Now here's our, our logistic, k sub 1 minus n sub 1 over k. But he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to modify this equation so that the actual um, growth of the organism is, is reduced in some to some amount that's proportional to the, the number of the other organisms are there, that are there. So he called that alpha n2, okay? So some, some amount that's proportional to the amount of the other species that's here. And then he said dn2 dt is equal to r2n2 k2 minus n2 minus beta n1 over k, this should be k1, over k2. So the growth rate of species 2 in the presence of species 1 is reduced by some amount that's proportional to the abundance of species 1. And these, the values of these, are, these are called competition coefficients. And they're a measure uh, if you, you, you can actually do experiments and put values on these, and they're a measure of how strong a competitor um, each of these species are with respect to the other one. Um, so you're not going to have to deal with these, but I just wanted you to see them and to, to, to see how population ecologists began to, 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 to model these systems. Um, and so it's the value, the relative values of these relative to the carrying capacities that will ultimately determine whether species will, will, will coexist or not when they're competing. Okay. So, so that's more uh, theoretical analysis. Now let's look at the real world. Um, it's very competitive um, exclusion, that is the exclusion of one species from an environment because of strong competition with another, it's very difficult to, to study because if it's not there, you don't know it was excluded, right? I mean, you can't, you, go, you don't go to some place and say, well, this, I don't see this species here. It must have been eliminated by competitive exclusion. Uh, it might never have been there. So it's kind of, so, so the way we uh, learn about the, this phenomenon is either through inadvertent experiments and that is the introduction of species to new environments um, and, and, and then see what happens. 
or actual uh, intentional ecological experiments. So we're going we're gonna to talk about um, both of those. And the first one, uh, <clears throat> we'll talk about invasions. exclusion. And one of the classic examples of this is the zebra mussel. Um, I don't know what happened to the, oh, there it is. Oh, I didn't realize this was animated. Cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's why there was nothing there. Um, so. So the zebra mussel is a tiny um, mussel that was introduced to the United States back in, uh, I guess, 1988, um, and uh, up here introduced into the Great, into the great Lakes from um, ships, just being attached to ships, or it's possible it might have been the larvae and ship, ships' ballasts. Um, ships go into port, they take on water into their ballast to stabilize, and then they go to another port and they, le they let it out, and they're filled with larvae and species. So the, the entire world oceans are now filled with uh, introduced species from ships' ballasts. Um, so, so here's 1988, the zebra mussel was there, 1990, here, uh, 92, 94, 90, whatever. <laughs> Where are we? Oh, 2001. Um, spread amazingly fast. And um, it's this tiny little muscle that seems to thrive everywhere, clogs all kinds of pipes, uh, settles on top of other native shellfish and um, kills them, and has led to extensive competitive exclusion of, of native shellfish in a, in a number of, of ecosystems. Um, some of the 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 effects of these, they've actually, in some ecosystems, they've actually made, cleared up the water. They're able to filter just an amazing amount of water um, when they're feeding. So they actually have increased the clarity of the water in many ecosystems, filtering out the plankton, which allows the light to penetrate deeper in those systems, allowing aquatic plants to grow um, from the bottom so, so the introdu introduction of this one species can completely change the structure of the entire ecosystem. Um, the, I just heard a lecture. I was uh, visiting the Institute for Ecosystem Studies, which is out in uh, Millbrook, New York. By the way, if any of you are, are um, looking for summer internships and are interested in ecology, they have a fabulous summer internship program. Um, I've had several students go there that have had a great experience. But there's, there's somebody there studying the zebra mus mussel invasion in the Hudson River. And um, he showed this incredibly depressing graph of over the last 10 years of the native mussels in that river going down to basically extinction. But then, this is the weird thing about ecosystems, just last year, it started to turn around. And they haven't done anything to eradicate the, the zebra mussels 
but these native uh, mussels are starting to have a comeback. And nobody knows why, and nobody knows whether it's a real comeback, um, you know, because it can come back for a couple of years and then. Uh, so it, 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 it's really interesting how, how um, unpredictable these, these complex systems are. Okay, <clears throat> but these mussels do cause uh, millions and millions of dollars of, of damage. And I also learned on that trip that ecologists are trying to get in place uh, uh, a policy that if, if an industry, for whatever reasons, uh, wants to intentionally introduce a spe the, the, here's an example of an application of fundamental ecological knowledge. The reason people study the ecology of invasive species, understanding this c competitive exclusion and all of that, um, is that <clears throat> you want to use that understanding to be able to predict if you introduce a species, a new species to a new habitat, whether it will be an invasive or not. There are some species you can introduce them and they will fit right in and not ex exclude um, every other species. And so what they're trying to put in place is, is insurance that a company would have to buy um, that was, was either intentionally introducing a, a species or whatever practice that they were doing was likely to introduce a species. And, and that the, the, the cost of that insurance would be a function of the probability of that species actually uh, causing competitive exclusion. And this is something that, that people are trying to put into place um, into the economic system, basically. Uh, so <clears throat> it puts a new meaning to a limited liability company, LLC. In the, uh, so you, 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 you have to insure your liability, which I think would, would go a long way to, to reduce some of these ecological crises. Um, okay. So, so the, those are, that's an inadvertent experiment. Now, there are many, many examples of this. There's books written on invasive species. And if I can get this thing to work, um, I'll show you some clips of, of invasive species, snakes. It, the, the biggest impact is on islands, um, because islands have been isolated ecosystems for so long. And then you introduce a, a, a species, and you have dramatic changes. The, in Australia, a big example was a prickly pear cactus, which was introduced um, many years ago to uh, create fences, for, like living fences for livestock. It completely took over all of the grass, not all of the grasslands, but a lot of the, the grasslands and, and turned them into um, thickets. Okay. So now, so that's an, the, the invasive species are inadvertent ecological experiments. Let's talk about, uh, uh, intentional experiment. And this is also a very classic uh, textbook experiment that, that was one of the first ecological experiments to be done. And it was done with, with barnacles. Uh, these are Joseph Connell, who's a professor at um, University of California in Santa Barbara. Um, uh, barnacles have larval stage that floats around in the plankton and then they settle on uh, rocks. And so this was a classic uh, barnacle ecosystem. This was done in Scotland, actually, in which in the upper intertidal, um, there's a species called Thamelus. And in the, the lower um, was this dominated by a species of mussel called Balanus. So he asked the question, is this, this um, distribution where the two are, are exclusive of one another, 
Is it due to competition between them, or is it just that this one tolerates desiccation longer than this one? The intertidal zone, the tide goes up and down, so this one's going to be exposed to dryness a lot longer. So how do you answer that question? Well, you do an experiment. Um, and so what he did was he took rocks from the upper intertidal that had the thamelis on them, and he moved them to the lower one. And he let the balanus, the species that dominates down here, colonize on those rocks. But then he uh, divided them in half and removed the balanus from half of the rock. And then he monitored the survival, survivorship of thamelis. And he actually did, remember the survivorship curves that we talked about when, when, we, when we created those life tables? He actually measured survivorship curves on these. If you go to the, if you go to the, the um, original paper, you see LX is function of time. Um, so that's a tool that they used. Um, to ask the question, is the survivorship of um, thamelis increased in the absence of balanus? And this is all from your textbook, um, showing that showing that the percent mortality um, uh, when the competitor is present is much higher than when the competitor is absent. So he's able to show um, directly that there was competition between the two. And in fact, this was that kind of comp aggressive competition where one just plucks the other one off the rock. I mean, it's direct, you know, you're on my rock, get out of here, and it pops it off. Um, he also was able to show that Tolerance to desiccation is also a factor in this system. It's not like it's totally competition, uh, but, but competition was playing a role. And so I've summarized that in, in, in this slide, showing using our, our terminology, <clears throat> he was able to show that the fundamental niche of thamelis, in other words, the, the, the region in the intertidal where the larvae could actually settle and and live in the absence of competitors was much broader than the realized niche, OK? <clears throat> um, all right. So let's skip this over. This is from your textbook. Um, and we're going to. Just use a, I'm going to use an example of that. Uh, so competition can also lead to character displacement. which in turn can lead to actual competitive coexistence. And as an example of this, we're going to talk about uh, Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. Um, and one of the ways that ecologists actually measure, that's a bird, <laughs> in case you didn't notice it. Uh, and this is beak depth. 
Um, <clears throat> the, the shape and size of a beak tells you what kinds of seeds a bird can eat. Um, and so they measure beak depth as a, as a measure of the, the, as a niche dimension, basically, of that, that, because um, it tells you what size seeds the bird can eat. And uh, a study was done. We're going we're gonna to make up some islands here. We're just going to call them A, B, C, and D. These are islands. And there are two species of finches, which we're going to just call F. Well, they're full in. Folig in Nosa. Again, the name's not important, but um, and the other one is called Fortis. So we'll just call them on islands that have both of them. And there's some islands that have only one. <clears throat> so what, what was done is they measured the, 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 beach de the beak depth of the different finches on the islands where they were found together versus islands where they were found alone in the Galapagos Islands. And what they found, and what this, is, this has been shown for many, many different um, studies, if you look at the beak, depth distribution um, this is percent in size class and this is Island C, D, and A, and B. And they found that when, <clears throat> when the species were on islands where they lived alone, uh, they had almost complete niche. Oh, this is, this is beak depth. They had exactly the same, same size beak distributions. In other words, they were feeding on the same food. But on the islands where they were together, A and B, just making sure this actually holds together, uh, they found what is called character displacement. And that is that the, <coughs> the birds that had beaks and smaller beaks were preferentially selected for such that reducing the amount of niche overlap. So and this leads to Competitive coexistence. 
okay? And that's what we're looking at here. This is from your textbooks. Um, this is for African seed crackers, showing that birds with smaller bills uh, consume soft seeds more efficiently. Birds with larger bills crack hard seeds. And you can see that the, the width of the bill here is different. Okay, 